Well, I'm happy and sad tonight. I'm sad because there's still a couple of spots up here, but I'm happy that some people have already repented, and that's really great. <laughs> that people on the front pew. It's so hard to get that to happen as a preacher. Oh, wow, what a great crowd we have tonight. Thank you to everyone who's assembled here. Um, I'm, I'm honored to be here before you tonight, and just thankful for every single person. There's a lot of things going on in town, but this is the best thing we've got going, I think. Uh, praising God together in this wonderful uh, worship service we're having already. And I think about how humbling it is to be here uh, with great preachers like James and Mike and Randy. When you get up sometimes during gospel meetings, you preach to preachers that are better than you. And uh, it's a humbling thing to do that. I said to some people as they were coming in, coming in here is kind of like being in a hammock. You ever been in a hammock with somebody else? If you're not friends when you start, you will be when you leave. <laughs> and uh, we're nice and tight in here, and that's, that's good. We're talking about family, and we are the family of God. Amber said tonight that you have a home congregation that loves you just by their presence here, and, and I know that too. I'm thankful for all the Willow folks that are here. But I know that, as we talked about yesterday, we're part of a, a universal family of believers. So there are people all over the world that are our brethren, brothers and sisters in Christ, and God had made a decision, even from the foundation of the world, that all nations would flow into the church. And you and I, if we're members of the body of Christ, are the most blessed people on the face of the earth. That's why on a Monday night when the rest of the world may be doing something else, we're here to honor and praise our Lord and our God. Isn't it great to be a member of the Lord's church? Amen. A sociologist and historian by the name of Carl Zimmerman, in his 1947 book, Family and Civilization, recorded his keen observations as he compared the disintegration of various cultures with the parallel decline of family life in those cultures. Eight specific patterns of domestic behavior typified the downward spiral of each culture Zimmerman studied. Here are the eight things he observed. Marriage loses its sacredness, is frequently broken by divorce. Number two, the traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost. Three, feminist movements abound. Four, increased public disrespect for parents and authority in general. Five, acceleration of juvenile delinquency, promiscuity, and rebellion. Six, refusal of people with traditional marriages to accept family responsibilities. Number seven, a growing desire for and acceptance of adultery. And number eight, an increasing interest and spread of sexual perversions and sex-related crimes. Eight statements that he observed that basically were the downfall of the family in any culture. What are we living in today? According to the Census Bureau reports from the last couple of years, only 46% of children are being raised in a home with two parents that are in their first marriage, less than half of the children in America. In 1980, that number was 61%. In 1960, it was 73%. And so we can see a loss of 27% of children that are simply being raised by a mom and dad who've just been married one time. 
once largely limited to poor women and minorities, single motherhood is now becoming the new norm. Prevalence due in part to the growing trend of children born outside of marriage. Last year, about four out of ten children were born to unwed mothers. And according to, again, the U.S. Census Bureau, out of about 12 million single-parent families, more than 80% were headed by single mothers. Today, one in four children under the age of 18, which is a total of about 17.4 million young people in our country, are being raised without a father. And nearly half, about 45%, live below the poverty line. Also, a very growing trend, a 70% increase in children who are being raised by their grandparents rather than their parents. And 54% of all kids under the age of six now live in families in which just the sole parent is working or both parents are working. It's just a different culture that we're living in, and things have changed a lot. So we're going to talk tonight about the importance of the home and family and responsibilities of the family. I would submit to you that the reason why these trends continue is because we have not been fulfilling our God-given roles in the family. But I would say, above all of that, people just aren't following God in general. They don't know God. They don't know His will for the family. They don't know what they're supposed to be doing in the family. Now, before we begin our discussion tonight, there are a few things I want to say. This is a very humbling thing for me to talk about because I want to say, do as I say, but not as I always do. I don't pretend to tell you that I'm the perfect father and husband. In fact, when I was studying for this lesson, I thought about all of my shortcomings, and I'm preaching to myself, not just to you. Also, there are a lot of different circumstances in our assembly. We have people of all different ages here, different situations in the home. So everyone, whether a child or a parent, brother or sister, there's something here for you tonight to listen to and think about and apply. And it even works as we apply these principles to the functionality of the church. A third thing I want to say is I hope that you'll take this lesson very personally. I hope that you're not thinking about some other family member that needs to get it together. I hope that you're thinking about you. All of us have struggles. Many of us have great disappointments in our family. So I'm speaking to you as individuals. And lastly, before we look at these six hallmarks that I want to talk about that are hallmarks of a happy home, I think we need to just realize that the home begins with God. It begins with God. God ordained it. In Genesis chapter 1, he brought it forth. And since that time, he's had a plan for the home. In fact, I think about I'm going to be doing three weddings in just a very short time. People call upon me to do these weddings, and then this is, this is wedding season. And uh, then there's premarital counseling. We spend a lot of time in premarital counseling. But I think about being able to perform a wedding and how, again, humbling that is. Now, I don't feel responsible for the success of that marriage. Those two people have to be responsible for that between them and God. But I think about being able to stand before a group of people like you and talk about how God ordained marriage how he recognizes it when two people come together and decide to give their lives to one another. How it really is holy matrimony. It's a sacred and beautiful thing in the eyes of God and that it was his plan from the beginning, one man and one woman for a lifetime. And I will say that if you can have that and if you can keep that, then you're going to be one of the most blessed people on the face of the earth. 
Now, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 5. This is our text tonight, and you can pretty much just leave it open there. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 21. We're going to read all the way through chapter 6 and verse 4. Rather than focus on all this negativity, I know that I've given you some statistics that are a little bit um, shocking maybe or just disconcerting. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about the positives from God's word that are going to equip us to overcome those numbers. Those numbers are numbers of the world, folks, but they don't have to be the numbers of the church. We can make it different in the church. And when we look at this passage, I think the reason why I chose it to be as lengthy as it is is because as one man told me when I first started preaching, use a lot of scripture because at least you'll know that you got part of the sermon right. Okay? So the, the correct part of this sermon starts in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21 and goes to chapter 6 and verse 4. Everything else is me talking. Okay, but the correct part is what God says. And hopefully we can at least gain something from that. He begins here and he's talking about submission to others in society. Verse 21, he's transitioning from talking about that and then moving into a relationship between husbands and wives. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth and you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Six hallmarks I believe are found here that will make for a happy home, a Christian home, a godly home. We want to begin by looking all the way back to chapter 5 and verse 21. I think when we talk about submission and fear of God and then we look at verse 25 Love your wives as the church. Verse 28, love their own wives as their own bodies. Verse 29, verse 33, we have to begin by talking about love. Love. That seems like a pretty basic idea. That's probably a word that most people in our society know more than any other word. They at least recognize an idea. Valentine's Day, everyone thinks about love and we think about the shape of the heart and certain colors and, and thoughts that go along with that. But I'm going to make this interjection that most people do not know what love is. Most people will live on this earth 
maybe even a long life, and not really know what love is because they do not know God. It's impossible to really even understand what love is until we know God. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Why? Because God is love. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It was, John says, not we that were loving God, but God that was loving us. And later on he says in that same text, we love God because he first loved us. What is love really? Our ability to love is the key to all human relationships. And I think it's probably the most emphasized thing here in our text. It's especially important in the family. It governs our behavior as a husband, as a father, as a son, as a wife, as a mother, as a daughter. I'm going to look at three other verses in the New Testament, if you'll just hold your finger here in Ephesians chapter 6, that I think really identify characteristics of love. Let's look in Galatians chapter 5 first. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. For you, brethren, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. When people talk about love, they use sometimes the wrong emphasis. This is something typically that I, I do when you in premarital counseling you talk to these two young people and usually they'll sit across from you in your office on the couch and they just come in there and they're just looking at each other, you know, and they just they just want to touch each other a little bit and their hand they want to bump up to each other. They're still excited just to be sitting in the same spot. Right? You get married in a little while and you're across the house from each other, right? <laughs> But these, these folks, man, they, they are pumped up, and they think that they can make it just on love. And they have no idea what they're about to be up against. They don't know what it's like to live with someone every day and understand all their weaknesses and deal with their strange ways. And I remember uh, a while back, one of the first weddings I did, it was in St. Louis, Missouri, and I remember two things about it. I remember it snowed, and I remember I paid 87 cents for gas. So it was a while back. And um, my, my good friend, I did his wedding. It was the second wedding that I'd ever done. And we were still going to Fried Hardeman at the time, and we were back down a couple weeks after we had been there at Fried Hardeman. And, and his wife, of course, that was a good friend of mine, it was time for lunch, and, and he was off in the class. And so we sat down for a minute, and we talked. And it was, it was about a month after they'd been married, maybe. And I said, well, how are things going? How's married life? And she kind of looked at me and kind of scowled a little bit. And I was kind of surprised. You know, it's just a month in. And she just said, you know, he's weird. <laughs> I, I tried to tell her, I said, hey, I could have told you about that before. If you'd asked more questions. When we talk about love, you know what a lot of young people think love is? Love is a good feeling that I receive because of the things that you do for me. The way that you make me feel, that's love. What does he say it is here? It says that love is serving others. And it's not an opportunity for the flesh. You know, there is really nothing carnal about love. Nothing fleshly about love at all. 
Now, there is an expression, a physical expression of love between two people that are married, but all of that that takes place only takes place because of what's already going on in the inside, if it's the way that God wants it to be. Love is a spiritual fruit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's, it's the pinnacle of all things that we try to attempt to do so that we can be like God. To think that we could love the way that God loves is almost inconceivable. And yet Jesus said in John chapter 13, you love each other just as I have loved you. You know why I think he gave us that challenge? Because he realized that he was asking us to do something that was impossible for us, but that we should still reach for anyway. And that's really what Christianity is. There's no possible way to always be pleasing to God, to always be sinless, to always be who God wants us to be, but we should still reach for excellence anyway. Reach for holiness anyway. Do you feel like you are a holy individual? We're, we're called to be holy. First Peter chapter 1 says, Be holy as I am holy. Do you feel that you are sacred and pure and good all the time? Are all your thoughts always as they should be? Sometimes I don't feel like a very holy person at all. And yet God calls me a saint. You see, God thinks more of us sometimes than we think of ourselves. And when he calls us to love, he's calling us to serve us. Through love, serve one another. So I ask these two people sitting on the couch, um, do you love each other? Now, no one's ever said, nah, we really don't love each other. We just thought, you know, just for sake of money and everything, it'd be a good arrangement. Although I'm sure that one of these days that's going to happen. No, they, they say, of course we love each other. But then I'll ask them, what do you mean by that? What does love mean to you? You know, if two people don't know what the love of God is, then they probably don't need to get married. It's service to the other person. That's what agape love is. It's thinking of someone else's needs before your own. So let's go to the next verse, chapter 6 of Galatians and verse 2. Now, there, the word love is not used here, but it's implied. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That makes me think of 1 Peter chapter 2, where it says that Jesus bore our sins, bear one another's burdens, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Bearing another person's burden, taking on their problem, carrying it on your back, being there for them, that's what a family does. A family is there for each other. In every single situation, no matter what takes place, we have these vows for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health. I'm going to tell you that two people that are 22 or 25 years old sitting up there making those vows have no idea what those things mean. They really don't know what it's like to be sick. They don't really know what it's like to be poor. They don't really know. They might find out. And in a sense, it's probably good for every couple to find out. Because when we go through those challenges and those problems and we come out on the other side because we have kept our commitment and we have borne each other's burdens, we have fulfilled the law of Christ. And we have understood what marriage and family is all about. Here's the third passage, Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. 
Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Marriage is two people trying to outlove each other. That's marriage. The kind of marriage that God wants it to be. You love me, I'm going to try and love you more than you can love me. And then if you love me a little bit more, then I'm going to try and love a little bit more. Love is about unselfishness. We could talk about money problems. We could talk about promiscuity. We could talk about um, other things like family and religion that sometimes have been put up there to say this is what breaks a marriage. I'll tell you what breaks a marriage. Selfishness. That's what breaks a marriage. When two people stop giving themselves to each other, heart, body, mind, and soul. When they came together, that's all they wanted to do. But somewhere along the way, somebody got selfish. And so the first thing we need to do is love each other. Now, another thing he says here in our passage back to Ephesians chapter 5 is that we ought to have reverence and respect for other people in the family. And this is not just about husbands and wives. Love needs to be taking place between siblings it needs to be taking place for our parents. When a discussion is made by Paul to Timothy about latter times and the falling away of Christian people, one of the things that he says is people start to hate their parents. They start to no longer love their parents. Those of you that are children, you ought to appreciate your parents. You ought to understand the sacrifices that your parents made for you. Somewhere along the line I grew up and I had kids and then all of a sudden, my wife and I are tag-teaming to all these different events. And in the middle of all that, you have an epiphany, and you say, wow, my parents did a lot of stuff. They did a whole lot of things for me, and they loved me, and they raised me. And I didn't realize, I just thought they were having a good old time. But this is work, and it never ends. And it's a challenge. And so we need to have reverence and respect for each other in our roles and, and also for the family. And, of course, that begins with God. What does it say in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. But fools despise instruction. It's the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. See, the amount of respect we give to God is usually going to reflect the way we respect each other. Why do families break apart? Because people don't respect God. For example, how do we view that which is holy in the mind of God? How do we view the scriptures? If we have kind of a, you know, this is, it's a good book. It's got some good principles in it. If we have that low view of Scripture, we're probably going to fail in marriage. Because this is the guidebook to marriage. This is, what, this is what we follow. If we have a low view of the organization and the purpose of the church and the work of the church, if we don't have a respect for the name of God, we're probably not going to respect that which he ordained. In 1 Peter chapter 3, this is especially for you that are husbands. I want you to look in 1 Peter chapter 3 with me, verse 7. I want to talk to you about having respect for your wife. Again, like I said, this is a very humbling sermon, okay? I need to respect my wife. You husbands, in the same way, verse 7, 1 Peter chapter 3, live with your wives in an understanding way. I want to stop right there. And I want to get a highlighter out, and I want to rub that in a nice, bright yellow 
text so that every time I open that passage, I see that again. Live with your wives, or dwell with them, some versions say, in understanding. Men don't do a very good job of understanding their wives. Now, I have seen this little cartoon that says, uh, Guidebook to Understanding Women. And it's this guy, and he's up on a table, and it's, it's like this thick, this thick. This big book, How to Understand Women, okay? It's not that easy, okay? And I want you all to know, you ladies, that we are dumber than you think we are. We are dumber. And you say, do you always, do I always have to explain this to you? And we're going to say, yes, you need to explain it to us. We do not pick up on all of those things that you think we're supposed to just innately understand. I realize this when I play Pictionary with my family. You ever played Pictionary with your family? And Amber and her mom can get on the same team, and she can draw a little squiggle. doesn't even mean anything. And she can guess what it is right off the bat. They have intuition. They know how each other thinks. I don't know. We don't know how women think. We don't. You have to explain it to us. But here's our job. We need to listen. We need to listen. And it's not that we have to completely understand you. We just need to emotionally care about what you have to say. And that's what women really need in the home. We come home from work, we're tired. We come to the door and they may want to talk to us right away. They've been waiting to talk to us all day. There ought to be, and I've, I've been talking about this in some classes I've taught at services at Willow, there needs to be a 15 minute rule, okay? You wives, you do this for your husbands. You give them 15 minutes just to sit down and relax. And man, if they give you that 15 minutes when that's over with, then you need to engage and you need to start talking to them. And you need to talk about things that are meaningful and important. There needs to be more moments in which we lie down in the bed and we just have what we might call pillow talk. You know, some of the best times that uh, two people communicate is when everything gets quiet, when the kids are put to bed, and we can actually share some things about what's really going on in our mind. I'm going to tell you that if, if that's not happening at, at home, then there's going to be there's going to be a distance that starts to, to gather between a husband and a wife that, that needs to come back together. Men, you need to listen to what your wives have to say. And it says you are supposed to show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. I mentioned the other day that your wives really don't want to argue with you. Some of you men think that the women, they just want to bicker and they want to complain and they want to argue with you. No, they don't want to argue with you. They just want to have an opinion and they want it to count in the final vote. That's it. They're actually your companion, and they're trying to do this with you. And I think one of the things that we've struggled with in our society is that we, we, we see the man as the head of the household as this figure of authority that says, it's going to be my way or the highway, and when I make a decision, everyone has to deal with it, whether it's good for them or not. Well, men are imperfect individuals, and if we're not getting our guidance from the good book then our, our decisions are going to be poor, and we're going to lead our family in the wrong direction. And many men have done that. Look at the statistics. What was the major problem in the home? The dad wasn't there. The dad's not there anymore. What's happened to the dad? Everybody needs a father who loves the Lord and who will allow Christ to be his head. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and verse 3. I want you to know, Paul says, that the head of... Woman is man, the head of man is Christ, and the head of Christ is God. Now, that's God's arrangement. 
People may not like it in our society today, but that's the way that it's supposed to be. We do have responsibilities to lead our home. In doing that, we need to have reverence and respect for our spouses. A third thing that we need to have is a feeling of responsibility. There in chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, and also in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the text outlines certain God-given responsibilities for each member of the family. There is something that you are supposed to be doing in your family, in your home, to make it functional. I'm not a very good disciplinarian sometimes at making our kids do the things they're supposed to do, but they're supposed to have chores. Um, someone posted this the other day. I believe it was Houston Bynum. It was a really good post on Facebook. It, was, it said something like this. If your child can use one of these, and it was a picture of an iPhone and an iPad and a computer, if he can use one of these, if your five-year-old or seven-year-old can use one of these, and they all can, okay, and they can use them better than you can, then he can also use one of these. And then the other picture was a picture of a mop, <laughs> all right, a picture of a broom. And my thought about that was, amen, okay? You know, we don't make our kids work anymore. They're just given everything. We have to babysit them. We even sometimes, we babysit them in the church. We give them all these things to play with in the pew. Parents don't do that. Do not fall into that trap. When I was a child, my mom made me pay attention to what was going on in worship. She taught me how to sing praises to God. She taught me how to pray. As soon as I was able to read, I was able to follow along. If your child is old enough to read, they're old enough to follow what the sermon is. They're old enough to read the scripture and to read the songs. Don't babysit them and try to placate their wishes and wants. Teach them about the Lord and teach them that that's the most important thing they could do is worship God. Too many people are babysitting their kids instead of raising their kids. And we have responsibilities to our children, and we're failing in that area. So understanding and fulfilling roles, following through with our responsibilities. What is marriage? Is it 50-50? What do you guys think? Is marriage always 50-50? You know, we say that, you know, it's 50% them and 50% me. I'm going to say most of the time it's 80-20 or 70-30 or 60-40. Now, it may change who does 80 and who does 20, but you know, because we have different types of challenges in families, there's going to be a moment in which I'm picking up most of the slack for my spouse. And at some point, she'll need to recognize that and then give me a break, and she'll take up the slack. There was a time when I was going to graduate school, and my wife put me through graduate school by working while I was not working. Well, guess what? We've flipped those roles. She's going back to school, and now it's my turn. That's the way that marriage really is. People need to understand that there's going to be some thin times in which you have to pick up the slack, and you have to be responsible, and you have to love that person and let them fulfill their dreams because that's what good spouses and people do. And another thing that needs to happen is when transitions are made, when challenges come, when there's a job opportunity here or there's a decision about what kind of home we're going to buy, that we are honest with our feelings about anything that we're doing. Oh, no, I don't really care about that. I've seen this happen a lot of times in marriages. I really don't care about that decision. You can have your way about that, or I don't care if you go back to work or whatever. In the meantime, they're over here going, man, I can't wait. I just I can't wait till this is over with. I hate this situation. I hope that it's not going to last very long, and, and he'll, or he'll be back or she'll be back. You see what's happening? We're being dishonest about how we really feel about major decisions that are being made 
And then we're having this animosity build up, and it's not fair. It's not fair. Be honest about how you feel with each other. You are responsible for your feelings. You need to be able to emote those freely and trust that other person with the things that they need to know. You know, every single person in the family needs to apologize and recognize when they have not been honest and when also they have not fulfilled their responsibilities. And they need to start doing that again. Okay, a fourth thing here, uh, chapter 5, verses 25 through 27. He uses the word sanctify and cleanse. And then he also uses the word uh, that it might be holy and without blemish. He's talking about Jesus wanting present, to present the church to the Lord as a holy, sanctified entity. You know, when Jesus comes back, the book of Revelation says it'll be like a husband coming for a bride that has been adorned for him. Now, what, is, what does a bride do before the wedding day? I've already seen this happening because like, one of the things that the, the girls come in and say is like, oh, I need to go on a diet, you know, and I need to look good on my wedding day, I wanna, and I want to be pretty that day. I want, that's going to be the day that I'm going to want to look the most lovely for my husband. When Jesus comes again, I hope he finds his church looking lovely for him, beautiful for him, holy for him, that we would want to present ourselves to him the way that God would want us to be. Holiness. The idea of holiness is being set apart because the home is special. It's an honorable institution, and it's something that is sacred and needs to be treasured. Guess why the divorce rate is down? Because less people are divorcing? No. Because some people just aren't getting married anymore. They're just living together. That's a fact. People just don't even get married anymore. They just say, well, we'll just live for, with each other for a while. We'll just break up if we don't like each other. That's how we now look at marriage in our society. Don't even get me started, started on the same-sex stuff. We don't even need to talk about that. That's so far out the door. It doesn't even belong in this discussion. But I, I'll tell you another thing that I tell young couples. It's pretty, pretty plain, pretty simple. I know we have some young ears in here. But I tell them, I don't know what they're doing behind closed doors right now is dating and maybe a month away from marriage. But if they're doing things they ought not to do, they need to stop. Because they need to come together on that wedding day and be pure for each other. They need to be holy for God's sake. Because if it doesn't start the right way, it's probably not going to end the right way. Let's be holy. Let's be sacred. You know, we treat things sacred that we care about. Do we really care about the other people in our family? You know, I know probably some men that would be more upset if their perfect 1965 such-and-such such car, they would be more concerned if it got scratched than if they hurt their wives' feelings. We need to prioritize the things that really matter to us and take care of them. Number five is growth. Every family needs growth. God wants our homes to be places where people can thrive and grow. We want our children to grow. In fact, one of the greatest things that you can experience as a parent is to watch your child go through different stages of growth and to see their development and to see how they begin to learn who God is and what their responsibilities are. And it's one of the most amazing things. I think when I was, when I was a younger parent, I was skeptical about whether or not my children could ever turn into spiritual human beings because, you know, you change these kids' diapers. I mean... That's not that exciting. 
<laughs> and you think, well, what are they going to turn into? Can they become an adult one day? And now they're starting to develop, and I'm starting to see thoughts that are spiritual thoughts that are all their own, that they own for themselves. And that's one of the most amazing things to behold as a parent. And then they make that decision finally to obey the gospel. And that, of course, is the happiest day in a parent's life. And why does that happen? Because someone somewhere along the way has watered the plant. And he says the way that we water it is by the washing of water by the word. There's no better way to help your family grow than to teach them about God and give them the principles of the Bible. Our marriages need to grow. As parents, we need to grow. One of the things that I learned also as I got older is that my parents made a whole lot of mistakes along the way. When I was three or five, I thought they were perfect. By the time I was a teenager, I thought they were the biggest idiots in the world. Right? But then I realized later on, especially now that my father's gone, that all I want to do is be just like him, even with all of his weaknesses and imperfections. Why? Because he loved his wife and because he loved us and because he loved God. And we can grow into that person. Every field needs to be cultivated. And the best fruit is going to come from mature trees. Which brings me to the last point. And as a hallmark of the home, a happy home, there is going to be permanency. There is going to be permanency. You see, we just need not to give up on our marriage. We need not to give up on our home. Even if everything is broken, even if everything is wrecked, you know, if we love God enough and if we will understand the power of a commitment, we can get through anything. I have counseled people through terrible, adulterous relationships that the entire town knew. I've counseled them through disease, through poverty, through the death of their children, through natural disasters, and they've hung in there and they've made it work. Marriage is about making it work. When two people come together, they need to understand the importance of this commitment. Just within the last few months, both of my sets of grandparents celebrated their 67th anniversary. Both sides. They're both still living. In fact, my grandmother is having a heart cath tomorrow in California. She's 85. I don't know what they're going to do to fix it. It's an 85-year-old heart. It's not going to be a 25-year-old heart. But 67 years of marriage on each side. And I, all I can say is thank you for that example. My parents were married for 43 years before my dad died suddenly. Amber's parents are married almost close to 50 years now. We're blessed. Her, both of her sets of grandparents before they died over 50 years. And I want to say thank you to all of you that have been married and have stayed married and are going to 40 years and 50 years and 60 years. And the Pharisees who just recently left us to, to be worshiping with their, with their son, if they make it to this, this fall, I think October, 70. They're going to have their 70th anniversary. Isn't that amazing? But it's all about commitment. It's all about understanding what it really means to say, when I said I do, I meant what I said. I don't think that there's any special formula for success in a marriage beyond what we can see in the simple pages of this book here. I didn't expect that when I was going to stand before you tonight that I was going to tell you something that you didn't already know, that hasn't been told for 2,000 years the Christian faith. It's not some magic formula. It's just doing things God's way, and it just means that there has to be an, a thought in our minds that when I get into this thing, I'm never going to want to get out, no matter what it's like. You see, there was a time in our world in which people were going to stay married regardless of what took place. And, and I know that there's a concession. I know that when 
for example, sexual immorality has been committed, that there is an opportunity there, depending on the person, and God gave that to us for a reason. But you know, people can even make it through that, and I've seen many do it. They can do it. If they make the decision that no matter what takes place, they're not going to leave. So as a spouse, don't ever even threaten to your spouse that you're going to leave. That's not an option. Don't even let that cross your mind. So when we start thinking like that, we stop thinking the way that God thinks because you know what? God never left. He never left us when we sinned against him. He never left us when we crucified his son. He never leaves us or forsakes us at any time. If anyone's ever lost, it's because they left God and wouldn't come back. But God, even right now at this very moment, is looking out at each and every one of us, and he is begging us to belong to him. That's all he wants. He wants to love us, he said in Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, with an everlasting love, a love of commitment, a love of permanency, a love that allows us to grow, a love that is holy and good. God has kept his responsibilities toward us. He has respected us even though we were disrespectful, and he has loved us with an everlasting love. We keep these principles. We do things the way that God does them. Then guess what? Then our families are going to be pretty blessed. Aren't you glad that you have a Christian family? I want you to think tonight when you go home. I don't want you to think about your bills. I don't want you to think about the upcoming test that you've got, medical test. I don't want you to think about the, the problems that you've got at work or the stress that you're dealing with or the fact that you wish you had more of this or that. I want you to thank God, thank God for spiritual blessings and thank God that you have people in your family that love you and especially if you have a spouse and children that are a part of your family and are there for you. You need to understand you're the most blessed person that exists on this earth. There are broken families and problems everywhere, but we have a Christian home we have everything that God ever designed for us to have so that we could feel loved and supported. And God just knows what he's doing. Well, the lesson is yours tonight. I'm glad we've had such an amazing crowd. And I want to remind you that God does want you to be his, and he will love you with an everlasting love. He is committed to you. He's committed to the point that he sent his son to die for your sins. And he wants you to respond in simple, trusting faith by saying that you believe that he is the Son of God, that you will be willing to repent of your sins, the very sins that caused Jesus to go to the cross, that you will confess his name, and that you'll be immersed in water for the mission of your sins. If you'll do that, he'll put you in his church. He'll forgive you of your sins. Salvation can be yours. Heaven can be your home. You can be a part of the family of God. And every single sin and the guilt of that sin can be taken away. Who wouldn't want a relationship with, like that, a blessing like that? If you're subject to the invitation tonight, if you need prayers, if you want to respond, won't you come as together we stand and sing?